Welcome to another episode of the greatest, the greatest podcast, podcast in, in history. history. Man, <laughs> never, never gets old. Never, never gets, gets old. old. Uh, I'm Dylan, and I'm Mitch, and we have a pretty, uh, pretty rowdy uh, topic of discussion today. As you can tell from Mitch's tone of voice, uh, it's going to be very cool, and there's going to be a lot of wild, weird stuff happening today. Yeah, I mean, if you if you thought that like gangs these days were bad, or that, you know, people go around just getting hammered, like, we're in Chicago, and you go, or you go out to Wrigleyville, and you walk around, and everyone's just... Okay, I was wondering where you're going with this. I'm just saying, like, Wrigleyville's, like, a neighborhood known for, like, partying. Yeah, oh, yeah. It's a bunch of, like, post-grads and stuff like that, and college kids. 21-year-olds. Yeah. Um, And last time I went to a Cubs game, I saw someone, probably looked like he was in college, he was walking down... By the bathrooms, so he just threw up into a trash can and then yeah. kept going. Sick. Um, but you know that stuff like that is kind of weird to us now. But it wouldn't have been that uncommon um, in the 1800s, <laughs> mid 1800s, uh, specifically in the kind of neighborhood that we're going to be talking about, the Five Points in One, New York. One, two, three, four, five. Yes. Um, so they took this was neighborhood in. New York City, like we said. Greatest town on earth, New York. Yeah. The Big Apple. <laughs> no more accent, please. Oh, no, this is a... Oh, boy. Um, is that we talk? <laughs> and it, uh, so it was basically five points were five different streets that converged uh, on one kind of central location, um, or just five different... You know, intersections, basically. Um, And it just got a reputation as the, basically the worst neighborhood in America for decades. And it kind of had this legacy, uh, even in memory today, whenever you think of the five points, it's, you see it as a black hole that no one could ever escape from. The Scorsese movie, uh, Gangs of New York, in particular, tried to capture that. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's really interesting. Gangs of New York took place in the 1860s during the Civil War, um, and its its actual its portrayal of it is pretty accurate in some senses and pretty inaccurate in others. Weird. Um, co-written, uh, fun fact, um, co-written by a dude named Joey Cox, uh, Gangs of New York, which is a great name. Just yeah. everyone just want to throw that out there. <laughs> there's a well, there's this side note, but there's a uh, Kansas City Royals first base coach or third base coach. Um, his name is Rusty Kuntz, and his last name is K-U-N-T-Z. Hell yeah. So, um, yeah. Anyway, the, a lot of the source material that I'm getting, that we're getting this podcast from is from a book called Five Points, um, by historian Tony Tyler and Binder. Um, it was written in, published in 2002, and he actually worked a lot with Scorsese and had kind of a, was one of the director's uh, go-to historians for questions on the, on the five points. Um, so there's a lot of really interesting history and a lot of different aspects about it, uh, about the five points. But, you know, we're, we'll, I think first we can talk a little bit about uh, how kind of historians look at something like the five points because yeah. we've, t- we've hit on stuff like historical memory in the past mm-hmm. for things like World War One um, and Civil War and how, how do you remember something exactly. like that or last week or not last week a couple weeks ago when we talked about monks and different views of the medieval ages and how we look at that yeah um, so it's, it's interesting with something like the five points which is like a neighborhood that garnered so much notoriety and infamy in its own days um, and kind of 
Anne Binder kind of makes it a point in the beginning of his book to talk about how for you know, a century historians looking at writing about the five points saw it exactly as, like I said, a black pit that no one could escape from, that everyone was drunk all the time, that people were being murdered left and right, because that's what a lot of the newspapers were reporting uh, at the time. A lot of diaries and journals said that, and a lot of like letters to the editors were talking about that. Um, and then in kind of like the late 1900s, there was kind of a, a revisionist history of, of the five points in which historians kind of started saying, no, it really wasn't that bad, um, and they kind of looked at different things and said it was it was perfectly okay. It was a great neighborhood. Everyone was happy. Um, kind of trying to, I don't know, redeem yeah. some of the uh, more more negative aspects of it. And Binder kind of places his book in the middle, saying that, you no, know, it wasn't necessarily the murder capital of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to quote a Jay-Z lyric real quick. Sorry. Go for it. What, what's the oh, Jay-Z no, the murder word? capital where we murdered for capital. Sorry. Oh. He's not a businessman. He's a businessman. <laughs> okay. Um, hey, Jay Z's from New York. Oh, fair it enough. Works. Yeah. Um, do you think he was talking about the five points when he. He actually might have been. Wrote, um, not when he specifically wrote the Murder for Capital line. He's talking about New York City in general. Okay. Uh, and Brooklyn specifically. Hmm. Um, but, sorry. Interesting. <laughs> no, but um, I'm, I think. In our very first podcast, we talked about uh, gin lane and the gin yeah. craze in, in yeah. London and whatnot. And the five points had a reputation. That it, was all, it was constantly being compared to like the seediest parts of London and Paris and stuff like that. And there were a lot of similar problems. Um, and we talked about in, in like gin lane and during the gin craze, a woman who uh, murdered her, her baby and then sold the baby's clothes in order to pay for alcohol. Um, and lots of people were saying that stuff like that was happening in five points. Uh, in actuality, though, murder the murder rate and the rate of violent crimes was no higher than any other part of New York City at the time. Exactly. It was just as bad. So it doesn't have as bad, bad it doesn't deserve that reputation in that sense, but it does deserve the reputation in kind of the rampant alcoholism. Yeah. Um, people were drunk 24 hours a day, basically. Um Going from thing to thing. And then there wasn't, like, the help we have today. Like, now, like, there's Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm -hmm. There's all sorts of uh, programs you can go to. If you're super rich, you know, you can go to a spa for, uh, like, three weeks and say you're, you know, just going to get away from everything. Um, But there And there wasn't sort of the medical science behind all that stuff happening at this point either. Mm -hmm. Like, alcoholics, like, it was just written off as someone who drank, you know, a lot or whatever. It wasn't seen as, like, uh, a crippling addiction. Uh, I was just seen as, like, you were just a weak person. Yeah. Um, and it's actually kind of interesting. We'll kind of... We can kind of structure this a little bit uh, chronolo- chronologically. Sorry. <laughs> um, if you want, because it kind of... The five points changes a lot over the span of, of a few decades. It's yeah. really at its, at its heights of, of squalor from kind of like the 1860s. Um, late 40s into the 60s and kind of into the 1880s. Yeah. Um, but the five points wasn't nearly as bad in the 1860s and 70s and 80s and onward because of a lot of charity organizations. And mm-hmm. we can kind of get on, we can touch on that a little bit later on. Yeah. Um, kind of because Ann Binder kind of compares it to the New Deal and kind of other things that they did. Um, but we'll kind of start with the beginning of the five points um, if, you, if you want to. Um, and kind Let's, of, I want to. Let's oh, you do? It. Fantastic. I was like, 
Dear listener, uh, do you want to... Uh, leave us a comment below. <laughs> if you um, want us to continue. Yes. No, please stop. Please stop. Um, no, but it, it gained... It's, you know, it started off, off to a really rough start in the 1840s with the wave and waves of Irish immigrants coming into the city. Uh, at this time, immigration was essentially unchecked. There were no limits on any country um, or any types of people coming in, and a lot of them kind of found themselves ending up in the five points because there was a rise of, of tenements yep. and kind of boarding houses and other places that, that people could come and stay. And it wasn't just, but it wasn't just a rise of foreigners coming into New York City. It was also a new kind of, I don't know, kind of a breed of like young adult um, men and women who were coming to New York for this kind of a new type of job. Uh, in the 1830s in America, uh, the market revolution happened. And basically what that is is that it's people were being connected to the market unlike any uh, other period of time. Uh, with the kind of start beginning of rising of railroads and uh, canals being built, the Erie Canal was finished, in, I think, in the 1830s. Yeah. And it connected uh, uh, people, farms all along upstate New York to the ocean now. Uh, into the Great Lakes, and they could transport their goods and services everywhere. And uh, New York City quickly became a hub for new jobs. So a lot of people, a lot of young men especially, were coming to New York, seeking out these new jobs, kind of white-collar jobs, if you will. Um, And they were kind of on a new frontier. You know, you had the West, but you also had the urban frontier. And it's interesting at this point um, to think, because New York City wasn't always, you know, New York City, like the biggest city in the world. It was like for a super long time, up until about when we're talking, it was still competing with cities like Philadelphia, cities like Boston, on who was going to wear all the global capitals and come in. Mm-hmm. Um, there wasn't, hadn't been decided yet. It was still New York City. Brooklyn uh, technically wasn't a part of the city. It was its own separate city at this point. Um, and it eventually combined. But so this was like the beginnings of New York becoming what we know of today as like the New York City itself. Yeah. And uh, with all these new I mean, men coming in off the boat, uh, men coming in from our other states and whatnot, uh, there was a huge rise in single men in the city. And never a good like no. <laughs> never like a good sign. Yeah, there are lots of lots of uh, bad trends with things like this, um, and they quickly kind of began forming their own gangs. Mm-hmm. And kind of groups to to come together to go crazy on the town essentially to protect themselves. Yeah, yeah. but also to just I mean, have friends to go do things with. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, and uh, some of these like these gangs wasn't like it wasn't what we think of today as quote unquote like a gangbanger or whatever. Yeah. Um, the, a lot of these times they were like formed from like uh, work groups. So like uh, some of the famous ones were, like they formed from like fire brigades. Like the fire, like they would, like they worked during the week as a fireman, and then at the at night and on the weekends, there would be a gang. So it was like formal, form more formalized associations based on where you worked and things. And it wasn't like twenty it, being in a gang wasn't their sole um, like activity. That was a large part of their identity. Yeah, um, and it's actually interesting. Fire, like volunteer fire groups, were like I said, kind of like gangs in themselves, mm-hmm. and. Um, it was actually kind of a way that you could work your way up a kind of political ladder, yeah. a patronage ladder. A lot of the politicians, um, Boss Tweed 
began, got his start as a volunteer firefighter and in, in a, a volunteer group. And at the time, um, these different fire departments were just as likely to fight each other as they were yeah. to fight a fire. Because they were, there was, it wasn't like a municipal thing. Like the government didn't pay for them. Yeah. And so they had to like they would have to fight off other fire groups to like put out the fires themselves. Yeah. I mean, there's a whole scene in <laughs> Gangs of New York where the these two there's a fire going on and uh, a blue fire brigade comes from one side of the street and a red dressed fire brigade comes from the other side of the street, they both stop and square off in front of the fire. No one's even looking at the burning building with people screaming from inside of it. They're just staring down at each other, and then all of a sudden they just charge in and start fighting each other while the building burns down. And that wasn't that much of an exaggeration. (laughs) Yeah, no, no, not at all. (laughs) Things like that actually happened. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's plenty of examples of people, like, actually saving people from fires and and doing the right thing. But, I mean, it was was all about territory and uh, proving your bravado, kind of. Mm -hmm. It was just another example of how could men prove how masculine they were and uh, prove how heroic they were in a good brawl. Exactly. Uh, And when you have a lot of young men in a city, that stuff happens... Almost constantly. <laughs> yeah, uh, but some of the one of the most famous or infamous kind of groups uh, was the Bowery Boys, and the Bowery was a, a, a street in the Five Points area, and it was also a about the name of a theater, the Bowery Ballroom. Yeah, and it's where they would perform crazy risque shows and all this other stuff and um, so there was a gang that got their name from it and they were they actually called themselves Bowery Bahoys um, B apostrophe H-O-Y-S uh, it was a, it was an attempt at like making it like an Irish name Bahoys I guess and then they also um, girls who tagged along with them were known as uh, Bowery Gahals it's it's weird um, I mean, gangs do weird stuff. Yeah, but the, these guys really formed themselves in like the 1830s and 1840s. And kind of as Ann Biner t- talks about it, they were more just, they weren't necessarily like political groups or anything like that. Yeah. They didn't get into fights at the polls or anything quite yet. Uh, at the time of their formation, they were really just kind of a, a bunch of rowdy guys who would just go out and, and they, they dressed up to the nines or as much as they can. Uh, trying to imitate the upper classes, um, and they had like black silk hats, and they cared so much about their hair that they put so much products in it um, that they some of them got the name nickname soap locks because they would put so much oil into their hair that it would curl the grease would curl around their ears and make it look and they were so shiny that it would be like they had soap uh, suds in their hair all the time. And it's a good uh, look. Yeah. There's a, I remember reading a newspaper article from the 1840s. It was an advertisement for some buffalo oil that you'd put in your hair. And it said, um, men, as you know, it's all about the hair, the hair, the hair. Um, <laughs> it is. Yeah. It's, it's all important. I don't know. <laughs> and so, I mean, they, it's so weird because they, they were guys who cared so much about their appearance. Like, they wanted to have perfect shoes, perfect ties, perfect jackets, and everything like that, uh, dressing to the nines, and then they'd go and just get into brawls, drunken brawls with each other, and slam each other into the mud, or go to bars and slam pint glasses against other people's heads and stuff, and, you know, doing all this in the fanciest suit that they could afford. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, which wasn't super fancy because these guys weren't rich. Yeah, no, it wasn't. It was all about kind of like trying to imitate the middle class. Yeah. Um, and so it's it's interesting seeing this kind of lower class emerging that's for, trying to imitate this middle class that's just kind of starting to come into its own. Uh, like talk about these kind of new jobs of like clerks and, and all these white collar jobs that were kind of opening up thanks to the market revolution. So the dichotomy between those two classes is kind of interesting. If you're a Marxist, I'm sure there's a lot you can read oh, yeah. into this. Uh, <laughs> a Marxist historian. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to poo-poo Marxist historians completely. Yeah. But it's not a good 100% read yeah. of everything. <laughs> but um, I mean, the, the Bower Boys also were kind of known for keeping a, a half-smoked cigar in their mouth, kind of sticking out just at the perfect angle out of just the left side of their mouth all the time. They wouldn't light it. You just had it there, and it had to be sticking out. It's like at one precise angle, uh, just to show how cool you were. It's very cool. <laughs> um, I mean, the cigars are like cool. I don't know if you guys like have seen one recently, like seen a dude smoking a cigar. But uh, when I see it, I'm like, I want to be that man. <laughs> That's the number one thought that comes into my head. Yeah. Um, so we've talked a little bit about how much these guys drank, and it was it was. Very easy for everyone to get a drink. Um, Prohibition hadn't happened yet. No, and there was, I believe, in your in the city, there was an average of twelve um, bars or taverns per block. Wait, what? yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, per it's, block. it's a little bit skewed though, yeah. because groceries mm. were they sold you know some regular supplies. They weren't like you know when we're like a, a Trader Joe's. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> or Whole Foods. Uh, these were places that had you know some groceries that we normally see today, but every single place had a keg or two kegs in the back where the customers would go in and as they sh- did their shopping, they would actually get a pint glass or a mug and purchase uh, a thing of beer and then drink it as they did their shopping. Or it was just like a gathering place too. Um, and it's actually kind of interesting because groceries, because women didn't go to the bars, they didn't go to the, the pubs and the taverns and the saloons, but they would go frequent uh, groceries, and they would oftentimes go into the basement of the groceries where there'd be more uh, kegs of beer, and that's when they where they'd have their own kind of meetings and and stuff like that. So it wasn't just men that were going around getting rip roaring drunk all the time; it was women of the five points too. Uh, and so that's kind of how that 12 per block is skewed because it wasn't like every place was a pub or a saloon. Every place, basically every building had alcohol for sale in yeah. it, though. Um, also, brothels were everywhere. Um, there was a, a report, I think it was called the, the Magdalene Report, and it had it was from, from the time, from the 18... 60s or 50s, and it estimated that there were 200 different brothels in in New York City. Uh, but kind of Tyler Enbinder says that there was actually a lot more, and it was it wasn't uncommon for a place to have some kind of quote unquote service or mm-hmm. provide extra services on its upper floors. Um, so really, no matter where you went, in at least the five points for sure. Any building you stepped into, you could probably find yourself a drink and a prostitute. Exactly. I mean, and the, like, keep this in mind, like, New York City is full of vice at this time. And then we'll see later in the later 1800s, early 1900s, the progressive movement come mm-hmm. into play. And specifically prohibition 
uh, and the outlawing of uh, prostitution in most of the U.S. was somewhat of a direct result of all this that was happening. They saw their, the idea of the progressives um, was that if we got rid of this, then people will be better. That's the only thing like keeping them back is the availability of uh, these vice. Yeah. I mean, that wasn't really right, but that's what, like, what they were seeing and yeah. that was their solution to it. Yeah. Um, I mean, and, and saloons at this time were super common, and we typically think of a saloon as a Western invention, but it was invented in the city, and basically all saloons were, were uh, just, like, long, narrow buildings, uh, rooms with a bar that kind of spanned the entire length of the room, and then on the floor it was just covered in sawdust because people would be spitting so much tobacco just straight onto the floor, um, and then you step in it, and it was it was lovely. I saw. I wish you could still do that. Fantastic uh, place. The worst thing about bars right now, you can't spit. I know. So sad. Um, but I mean, the saloons with their tobacco-covered ground and sawdust-covered floors were basically palaces compared to the tenements. Yeah. And the boarding houses mm-hmm. at the time. Um, lots of times, these places were actually just places that kind of like hotels in a sense. Um, you'd pay just a couple cents and you'd get essentially a spot on the floor of a room. Um, so it was great for these kind of like Bowery boys or whatever who would be going out on crazy night in the town, uh, coming back to this place, give the uh, owner a few uh, cents and then just crash on the floor. Yeah. Uh, but you're, I mean, you're surrounded by dozens at some times of other men probably smelling like crap. And these uh, are like completely unsafe, like structurally unsafe and unsound buildings yeah. as well. There's no like building codes or anything mm-hmm. these days. Yeah. And they want to get the mo- the landlords want to get the most money they can from these buildings. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because like now we think of like tenements don't exist anymore or whatever. Like there is, there's a tenement museum in New York. Um, but, like, if you just look at the projects or, like, project buildings, like, it's ex- almost exactly the same thing. Yeah. It's just, like, so these sorts of housing problems and all, like, the uh, activity that comes with them are such, like, there's, you can pretty tie pretty directly, like, the failure of projects and the failure of tenements to rising crime levels and, like, development of gangs. Mm-hmm. It's just, like, good housing is, like, very, very key to having a good city. Yeah. Um, and Five Points did not have good housing. No, not at all. Uh, it was, I mean, it was terrible. There's examples of where you'd be, you'd step outside into like the backyard if you're trying to head towards the outhouse, and you'd step on if there were boards um, in the backyard area, you'd step on it, and sludge would creep up between the cracks as you kind of stepped on it. The boards sank a little bit. And you don't know what that sludge is. Yeah. Um, Human waste. Yeah. There was no actual street cleaning services at this time. Uh, it was actually a common job of children of families to take a broom in the summer and fall and winter and go try and s- sweep the streets. And they'd ask for tips and stuff like that. And this did not work whatsoever. <laughs> Essentially what they were doing is they be, they just literally pushed around the sludge. Yeah. Um, because it just... it There's no drainage system. Yeah, there's no drainage system. No crocodile sewers yet. No. <laughs> crocodile sewers. There's, Is that what they're called? There's, no, there's crocodiles in the sewers in New York. Oh. You haven't heard that? No. It's like an urban legend. Oh, okay. Real. It's not a legend. It actually exists. I've seen one. Ooh, In nice. Spider-Man 3. 
Uh, <laughs> I don't think that's the same kind of crocodile that. Uh, it is. Okay. Um, but yeah, they'd be working for tips, and I mean, there's just so much sludge that you couldn't get it off. And this is a lot of this when we talk about you sometimes have the image of people pouring like chamber pots out their windows yeah. in urban cities. This was this wasn't exactly as common as com- as typically thought of. Um, it was usually a byproduct of immigrants because they'd be coming from largely rural areas where if you're on a farm in in the middle of nowhere you can actually take a, a pot of your waste and dump it out the window and that's going to decompose and exactly. it's not going to be a problem. But when you're in an urban area with hundreds of thousands of other people and they're all doing the same thing and no one really knows any better, yeah. that's when you get cholera. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it did, shit does not decompose on stone. No. Um, it was just it was just terrible and filthy and horrible. Yeah. Um, don't ugh, living in a city wasn't like good until like I don't know like the 1950s. Yeah. And even then it wasn't good unless you were white. Yeah. Like it's, yeah. No no air conditioning either. I mean people would go out and just sleep on the streets because their apartments or their tenements would be too hot. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's I. Mean, a problem. And same thing in the winter. New York, it's extremely cold in the winter too, uh, and that's a problem for them because you the wind would come through and howl and exactly. everything like that. And if you're trying to go to the outhouse, what are you going to do if it's all frozen over? You can't get yeah, to it. Can't. And this was like there's nothing to really fix this at this time. Yeah. Like the idea of laissez-faire economic policies uh, and government low government um, interaction was still huge at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, the progressive movement hadn't come to power. Uh, there was no real uh, politicians like arguing for um, interventional interventionist government policies to help the poor. It was all is considered the church's job or uh, local uh, people's job to donate to charities. But mm-hmm. obviously, when you have you know millions of people coming in every year from uh, internationally and nationally, there's just no way any of these organizations can get enough money to do any of this. Exactly. And no one's willing to donate. Like, the yeah. robber barons aren't going to, you know. Yeah, I, and it's, it's a problem because kind of as, as Ambire talks about it in the, in the end of his book, as he comes to kind of the turn of the century um, around the 1900s, he says that, like, it was still a problem. Uh, it may not have been a problem in the five points necessarily, but in New York City and other cities in general, tenements were still a problem and all these, this poor... Uh, class was still a problem, and it didn't stop until immigration was restricted, until Congress passed leg- legislation um, kind of halting or slowing down immigration from all around the world, um, until it was when finally the groups that did have the resources were able to apply those resources and not have it get dried up immediately, and they were able, and there was enough jobs for people yeah. to have too, because not everyone was competing and stuff. And we should the I guess we don't want to confuse the point that immigration wasn't exactly the cause. It was just that that was a solution they found to fixing the problem. So cutting off immigration wasn't like the problem. Like wasn't the problem that was there. It was one of the solutions they found to the cause. Yeah, and and any well any kind of it's impossible to draw comparisons exactly. of of this kind of immigration yeah. as it is um, with today's immigration. That immigration back in the 1840s and uh, throughout the 1880s was literally unrestricted, even from Europe, uh, and that's where the that's where millions and millions of people yeah. were coming from. And any kind of nowadays, even Europe is restricted in how many immigrants were are allowed to come into the United States and stuff like that. Um, and but yeah, it, it was 
I mean, it was on this massive scale, and that is what 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 kind of fixed the problem for the time yeah. being in in the majority of the, of the sense. I guess and like know. fixed in quotes, yeah. as in it allowed them to do a little more to help fix it, but they didn't really yeah. <laughs> like fix anything. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, um, I mean, kind of moving on to, I don't know. We can talk about a little bit. Start t- toward moving towards the progressive era. Yeah. And stuff. Um, the five points was actually it, it started to calm down, and it only really started to be not become this not be this den of vice and evil as into like well we're putting a little moral moral <laughs> strictures on this here with the use of the word evil Mitch okay uh, den of <laughs> vice and alcoholism and really <laughs> shitty living uh, crappy living um, uh, yeah moral uh, turpitude <laughs> um, but it was actually one of the sites of a, a lot of the very first attempts at welfare. Yep. Um, there's kind of some comparisons. There was a lot of Protestant charities that were formed, and kind of as you hit on a little bit earlier, um, at the beginning for a lot of like religious charities, they didn't really go to the seat of the problem. They just kind of said, well, you need to become more religious, and then all your problems will be yep. <laughs> uh, solved. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was like if you were poor, it was kind of like you were morally decrepit. Yeah. Like, it's, I guess it's kind of how we talked about when we talked about the medieval ages and the monks, how, like, good things would come to you if you acted, uh, they thought, if you acted, like, uh, morally and with line in line with God. That was, yeah. like, that same line of thinking was present here uh, in 1800s New York. Yeah. Um, but things actually started to begin to change in the late 1850s into the 1860s and, and 70s. Uh, when these charities, especially like Protestant charities and stuff like that, realized uh, none of our stuff is actually helping. Just going door to door with the Bible isn't solving anything. Um, and they actually started to provide real concrete help. Um, you actually, he he kind of calls this uh, perhaps the first nation, uh, the nation's first welfare system, and it draws some comparisons to the New Deal. I'm talking about Ann Binder here. Yeah. Um, but he says that like the only difference between these policies and some of the policies of the New Deal was that the New Deal did, in some cases, give out money to, to people, just like give out cash checks and stuff like yeah. that. Um, these charities didn't do that. But everything else, like food, employment, uh, shelter, job training and, place tra- and placement, abuse counseling, foster care, all these things were there in these five-point charities in the 1860s. Yeah, uh, and these were some of the very nation's very first ones, and they were and they were going in and taking over some of the some of like the worst buildings in the Five Points that um, you know were once like brothels or whatever. They the charities kind of went in, bought out the the building, and then made it a um, housing for the mm-hmm. poor and stuff like that. And that's really what actually all of a sudden the Five Points started to turn around. Um, there used to be where it, it actually. It wasn't as much of a tourist destination anymore. Uh, there was a point in time in the 1840s and 50s and 60s where it was very popular to go, quote-unquote, slumming, mm-hmm. which is where if you were wealthy enough, you would actually just go in, uh, hire a police escort, and you'd walk around the streets of the Five Points seeing how the other half lives, in a sense. Um, for some people, uh, they did this because they actually were concerned, and they came out of it saying, holy crap, I need to do something to help. 
uh, for other people, they just kind of wanted to go and see what the poor people were up to. It was a thrill. Yeah. Yeah. Yikes. I mean, yeah, Charles Dickens went in the 1820s, and he said that it was it was worse than any London slum he'd ever seen. Um, Abraham Lincoln went and visited, um, I think, in 1860. Uh, he went and spoke to some kids at, at a school, and there's this, uh, apparently one of the, the teachers said, you know, will, will you please speak to these kids and tell them how, you know, how did you make it from your humble beginnings? Because he, hey, he grew up in a yeah. farm and stuff like that. And, and when, how did you make it to where you are today? And he just kind of, he started tearing up and crying and saying, what can I say to these kids when, yeah. you know, they have nothing? Exactly. And I think it is, along with that, it's important to remember that this was happening during the Civil War. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of times when people look at history, like the Civil War, that's essentially the only thing that happened during this period when yeah. people teach it. But there's a lot of stuff going on um, in the nation at this time, uh, and it was affecting a lot of people. I mean, the Civil War obviously was still important to the development of the Five Points, if mm-hmm. only because, you know, lots of men were dying and leaving families broken uh, in the city, and uh, when you like lose like your primary breadwinner, you know you kids want to form gangs. <laughs> yeah, it leads directly leads to that. Yeah, um, I mean, no, it 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 extremely directly impacted the Five Points. Um, there was the New York City draft riot in yep. 1863, uh, which was basically uh, in order to get more men for the Union Army. Uh, Lincoln passed a bill that initiated the nation's first draft. Um, it was actually, he passed the first draft after the Confederacy already passed their first draft, mm-hmm. um, which is interesting if you're ever going to talk about states' rights or whatever. Yeah. Um, the Confederate <laughs> government was the opposite of states' rights. They oh, were 100%. one of the most centralized yeah. governments in, in exactly. history. And they levied so many taxes. Yeah. Oh. Um, but anyway, the, lots, of the, lots of the immigrants were not happy by this, um, by this draft. Mm-hmm. And one of the things they are most upset about was the fact that if you paid a fee of three hundred dollars, you could where you were exempt from the draft, and that essentially was the amount that it, it took to outfit and train a new soldier. So you were essentially paying the government for someone to take your place. Yeah. Um, and I mean, people since Five Points in Law of New York City neighborhoods were such you know, poor areas, no one could afford that. And they were furious. Specifically, a lot of the Irish immigrants were so upset that they took to rioting in the streets. And it's, for some reason, they targeted, oftentimes targeted African-American neighborhoods. Most of the time. It, was essentially, it turned into essentially the biggest race riot yeah. that the U.S. has ever seen. Yeah, up until that time. There, yeah, exactly. I think there's worse ones afterwards. It was, um, well, it's not for unknown reasons. It was essentially, like... It was at this. It was extremely easy to target uh, and scapegoat African Americans. One mm-hmm. because the Civil War was happening, and a common idea at this time, even if it may not have been true, was that they were fighting the Civil War for the, to end slavery, essentially. Mm-hmm. And if you're being drafted to fight a war you may not believe in, uh, even though slavery was uh, illegal in the uh, northern half of the United States prejudices and racism still existed yeah. tremendously. And so fighting for someone you thought was lesser than you uh, and then having a chance to vent your anger, uh, it turned into a race riot. Yeah. Uh, it was extremely destructive and destroyed a lot of 
homes and livelihoods mm-hmm. and just made a lot of like the poor neighborhoods even poorer. Exactly. <laughs> it doesn't help when you do things like that. Um, and yeah, it was all built on prejudice and there's plenty of other examples. There was um, a riot in the 1830s uh, between the, the Barry Boys. Uh, it was a giant fight. Um, the Barry Boys were, were a nativist group. So they were basically people who were quote-unquote native yeah. to America yeah. in the sense that they were born there, <laughs> although their parents may have been immigrants. Yeah. It didn't matter to them. No. Um, they're essentially saying America for white Americans. So yeah. they were Trumps. Yeah, well, and not, even, not even just white Americans. I mean, yeah. they, they fought Irish immigrants. Yeah, exactly. They didn't want the Irish coming in. They thought the Irish were less than white. We're not white. Um, There's a great book about this. It's called How the Irish Became White or something to that effect. Because mm-hmm. um, at one point in time, Irish people were not considered white. And they were considered like a lower, a lesser kind of white. And yeah. so this is an example of that. Yeah. Um, I'm looking up the title of the book. Now. No, I, th- I think that's right, actually. Yeah, I'm trying to find the author. Okay. But sorry. I, um, I know it's, it's yeah. No ignitative. <laughs> how are you fucking pronouncing his name? By that was that was a direct kind of transition from the British United America because it was a very English thing to do to think of the Irish as less than, than mm-hmm. human and um, and so that translated directly and there were countless riots and f- giant street brawls between Barry Boys and other nativist groups and um, Irish groups such as like the the Roche Guards or the Dead Rabbits. Um, although the dead rabbits may have not actually been a real name for them, um, that's something that's oh, interesting. Yeah, the Wikipedia article uh, does not say that. <laughs> but um, so yeah, I mean, there's yeah, there's it, the Five Points and New York and urban riots have a long history in mm-hmm. America, um, and a lot of that happened right there in Five Points, where there's so much racial conflict and yeah. class conflict and that's the um, thing to keep in mind I guess with a lot of this is that when we talk about like the beginning of the progressive movement and the beginning of like charity organizations they were directed at white people like black people and African Americans were not the recipient of this charity mm-hmm. uh, a lot of the progressives were incredibly racist and like believed in like race science and like phrenology which like said that like you know African skulls were like smaller, like had too many bumps or some nonsense, so they shouldn't be the recipient. Yeah. Like, they would just be, they would waste this charity, unlike, you know, the sturdy European like figure, <laughs> which could handle like, it's all nonsense. Yeah. But this was, it was commonly accepted at this time. Yeah. Um, and it's actually kind of interesting how just like the emergence of the progressive movement kind of mirrors this, like, they had a lot of racist undertones. Um, it mirrors a kind of shift in a lot of American mentality about race. Because, um, like, life in a lot of these groups, like the Barry Boys, in the 1830s and 40s were very different than groups in the 1870s and 80s in their thinking. Um, Amber kind of tells a story of a, a Chinese immigrant um, named uh, Quimbo Apo. And he basically got in trouble for murdering someone in New York, um, and a, a mob came and took him away and kind of and killed him on their own or something like that. And um, Ambar kind of says that had this happened in eighteen the eighteen thirties, because this happened in the late eighteen sixties, but had this happened in the eighteen thirties, the mob wouldn't have come, and that they would it wouldn't have been a racial charge against him, even though he was Chinese, because I guess at that time, 
um, the Chinese were not seen as threats, I guess, mm-hmm. to economic status or standing or, or jobs or anything like that. And so if you were, I guess, if you were a Chinese person, you, your life might not have been great and you may not have been, you know, best buddies yeah. with, with everyone, but it wouldn't have been nearly as bad as it was in the late 1800s. And a lot of historians say that, you know, America at the turn of the century, around 1900, was way more racist, like overtly racist, yeah. at least our, probably our modern understanding of racism, yeah. um, than it was in the early 1800s. Huh. And that's all due to a lot of these changing in city demographics and yeah. stuff like that. Um, so it's just interesting to see how that develops over time. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, I mean, like the racial history of the United States is so complicated and intense and ever-changing. Yeah. And this is just one small example of that change. Yeah. Um, Let's talk a little bit, I guess, before our, the battery's low here, uh, <laughs> about, like, the, I guess, we always, like, Tammany Hall and those sorts of things, mm-hmm. and Boss Tweet is always also all tied up in five points as well. Yeah. The politics of the time, talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, Boss Tweed, uh, William Tweed, was a, kind of a, a power broker in in New York City, and, the, and he kind of was at the height of his power in the 1860s. Tammany Hall was the name of a building, um, and it was where the Democratic Party had their uh, headquarters in New York City. And basically, a lot of politics at this time um, had kind of evolved into something where it was all about how could you get groups to vote for your party. Um, and it's all about who knows who and having upstanding citizens be kind of the, your faces of the party. And basically how Boss Tweed would work was he would go about, he would have all these connections to uh, people who had then connections to other people, and it would work all the way down to even bar owners. Saloon owners were some of the most powerful political people in the world because you always had a very loyal group at your bar. Um, exactly. And so if you're the only sober person in the bar serving up alcohol to all yeah. these drunk people, you say, hey, you should vote for this person. Um, exactly. You're going to get everyone in that bar to vote. Yeah, and there's great stories of, like, saloon owners connected to this patronage system. They had ledgers full of fake names, fake addresses, all these sorts of things, and then they would hire these multiple voters to go out and register in different districts uh, in five points and give them these fake names to register by. It was all run through the saloons. People would vote, you know, three or four times for their candidate, and they would be hired by the the halls to do this, and the saloon owners, sorry, the saloon owners would run the whole gambit with their but ledgers of fake names and addresses. Yeah. I mean, it was... It it's was, like Chicago now. <laughs> there we go. Um, I mean, there, there were some kind of redeeming qualities about um, kind of some of the aspects of the system. Like, yeah. Boss Tweed um, did a lot for charities and trying to help people out. Um, a lot of this was done saying, you know, if I help you out, you'll vote exactly. for this yeah. way. But at the end of the day, for those poor people, what do they care about exactly. who they vote yeah. for? If this person's helping them, they're going to vote for them. It's going to be all exactly. okay. Yeah. Um, so it, it kind of has a light and dark side to all this stuff. Uh, and you have to kind of keep that in mind. Uh, but Boss Tweed was eventually brought down and imprisoned in the late 1860s mm-hmm. um, for all his corruption and stuff like that. Tammany Hall lived on, but I think Boss Tweed died after about a year after he was imprisoned. Yeah, um, it's it's actually one of like the big things. There's a great book, The Poisoner's Handbook. Uh, it's a historical study of the development of like forensic science, and one of the reasons it was it started out in New York and became super big there, 
And one of the reasons it was so successful is because of this patronage uh, Democratic like boss system. Like the boss found this person and was able to keep them in office for long enough for like them to test their like ideas and give them the support that they needed to start <laughs> forensic science yeah. and like be able to solve poison murders now. So it had some good it had some good sides. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we could. There's so much to like this stuff that we can all talk about. We can do entire podcasts on just certain aspects of, yeah. of this kind of subject. Um, but I think as of right now, it's probably a good place to end. Yeah, it. if you're interested in reading more, the Armbinder book is really great. Five points. What's the subtitle? The 19th century New York City neighborhood that invented tap dance, stole elections, and became the world's most notorious slum. Ooh. Bah, bah, bah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, check it out. It's a very good read. Um, if you ever like Devil in the White City, yeah. um, it kind of reads like that. Um, so it's very interesting and great. Um, so my name's Mitch. I'm Dylan. And this has been the greatest podcast in history.